This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In the United States, employees in the executive branch, the legislative branch, practicing lawyers, judges at the state and federal level, are all subject to ethical codes of conduct. There's one glaring exception to that the nine justices on the United States Supreme Court. This is untenable. Ethics cannot simply be left to the discretion of the nation's highest court. The court should have a code of conduct with clear and enforceable rules so both justices and the American people know when conduct crosses the line. The highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards. On Tuesday, Illinois Democratic Senator Dick Durbin chaired a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing examining the lack of any sort of formal ethics code for the Supreme Court. As has become inevitable on the Hill, politics rushed into the fray. Here's Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. We can talk about ethics and that's great, but we're also going to talk about today of a concentrated effort by the left to delegitimize this court and to cherry pick examples to make a point. Now, Senator Graham may have a point. Cherry picking happens. But in this case, the cherry tree is heavy with fruit. Recently, as reported by ProPublica, Justice Clarence Thomas has accepted luxury trips from Republican megadonor Harlan Crow virtually every year for more than 20 years. And over those 20 years, Thomas never disclosed those trips. And according to ProPublica as well, the extent and frequency of the gifts have no known precedent in the modern history of the high court. Justice Thomas also accepted Crow's largesse in the form of a home for Thomas's mother and school tuition for a child Thomas helped raise. Another bunch of cherries comes via Justice Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, who was paid tens of thousands of dollars by longtime judicial activist Leonard Leo, head of the Federalist Society. The Washington Post reports that Leo deliberately left Thomas's name off of billing and tax paperwork. Then there's Chief Justice John Roberts, whose wife made millions of dollars recruiting lawyers to prominent law firms, many of which had business directly before the high court. Now, does this raise a conflict of interest with the Chief Justice? The Senate Judiciary Committee wouldn't address that directly, but Senator Dick Durbin did call it, quote, more troubling issues that demonstrate the need to begin the process of restoring faith in the Supreme Court, end quote. Moving on. Justice Neil Gorsuch. Shortly after taking the bench, Gorsuch's Colorado home was purchased by the head of a major law firm who had numerous cases before the court. The purchaser of the home was not disclosed in court filings. Now, we're not talking just red cherries here. The cherries come in all shades, including blue. The late Ruth Bader Ginsburg directly criticized then-presidential candidate Donald Trump in 2016, something justices are not allowed to do. She even signed a copy of her decision in an an important women's rights case and then donated that signed copy to the Women's Legal Defense Fund, who then used it for fundraising. Justice Sonia Sotomayor has been paid millions of dollars in book deals by publisher Penguin Random House but she failed to recuse herself in at least three cases involving Penguin that have come before the court. Ditto for Gorsuch, who didn't recuse himself for a case with the publisher after his book deal. So, 
Heavy are the branches of that cherry tree. Is it time to do some trimming? Does the United States Congress have the authority to force the Supreme Court to adopt an ethical code of conduct? And if so, what would it look like? How would it be enforced? Here's Michael Mukasey, former federal judge and U.S. Attorney General under President George W. Bush, testifying in that hearing this week. A law compelling the court to adopt such a code or or purporting to impose one legislatively would violate the principle of separation of powers and would also be unworkable inasmuch as there there is no authority other than the justices themselves to apply such a code. Mukasey has a point. Recall, the justices get to sit on the bench for life. Why, though, has the country's highest court been unique in this? It has gone 234 years without a binding ethical code of conduct. Well, Amanda Frost will help us answer that question today. She's a professor of law at the University of Virginia. She's a leading expert on judicial ethics, and she testified in that same Senate Judiciary Committee hearing this week. Professor Frost, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me. So first of all, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, what you made of the testimony you heard um, earlier this week um, at Judiciary. What was it like being in the room? Uh, Yes, I was glad that the Senate shone a light on this issue. I was glad that we got to hear from a number of senators and witnesses about this issue. And occasionally there was actually substantive discussion about steps forward and ways to improve the situation and strengthen the court, which is what we all want. Did you think that Senator Graham had a point about uh, some cherry picking of egregious examples here? Um, So I think one of the problems is that there isn't any oversight of the court's ethics, which leads investigative journalists to act as if they are the ethics officer for the court. And that is problematic because what journalists choose to cover or what they manage to discover um, may appear to some to be biased. And if the if that's a problem, then the answer is, well, the court itself should be more transparent and should be investigating these issues to avoid this drip, drip, drip of stories from journalists. <laughs> so if you want to control the story, do the investigations yourself, i.e. have an, an ethical code of conduct. So so just to be clear, do you think that the, the, the Supreme Court should adopt an ethics code for itself? Yes, I think it's high time the court did that. Okay, so... So we're going to talk about why you think that, some arguments against it. And again, this nagging question, 230 plus years. Um, I mean, how has the Supreme Court, in the absence of a formal code of conduct, historically regulated itself ethically over that time? Well, first I will say that the court is regulated by Congress when it comes to its ethical conduct. It doesn't always follow the rules that Congress has laid out for it, but it would not be a brand new thing to require the court to follow laws governing the ethical obligations of the justices. So, for example, the justices take an oath. They have since the 1789, the, the creation of the court, where they promise to administer the law faithfully and impartially. Um, The justices are governed by a recusal statute that's applied to them for 75 years. The justices uh, are required to follow the Ethics and Government Act, which requires that they submit annual financial disclosure uh, forms, and they're limited by other laws that uh, prevent them from accepting gifts from parties before them. So the justices are required currently and have been for decades to follow federal laws regulating their ethical obligations. The problem is they're not always doing it. And then a second problem is 
I think there also needs to be a code of conduct of the type that governs the lower courts. Okay, so we're going to talk more uh, about the, some of the specifics that you just said the, of the ex- of what currently exists regarding what should be, in an ideal world, effective tools for um, for uh, ethics regulation here. But given what you just described about the requirement for financial disclosures, for example. I mean, how would you assess what has been reported by uh, for ProPublica, for example, and uh, Clarence, Justice Thomas's receipt receipt of of gifts, of of trips, of luxury, you know, yacht vacations, of um, tuition f- to help uh, send a, a, a young man, he, young boy, he was raising, helping to raise. Uh, what do you make of all that? So. Uh, the, those the Justice Thomas has had recurring problems, not just this year, mm-hmm. uh, not just disclosed this year, but over decades, with following the obligations uh, of the Ethics and Government Act, which require reporting income and gifts. And he's had to amend those forms many times and acknowledge error in the past. So I see a real problem with Justice Thomas in particular, in that he's been either sloppy or possibly has thought the law doesn't bind him for some constitutional reason. Uh, Either way, I think that's deeply problematic, not just because, um, of course, we want our justices to behave ethically, but also because he's responsible for administering the law for the entire nation and imposing and applying laws to prisoners and immigrants and the rest of us who have to follow federal tax laws and the various laws Congress enacts. So to have a justice of the Supreme Court be so uh, blatantly ignoring a law that applies to him, I find very troubling. Um, that said, I'll just add your your intro listed a whole number of different news stories in recent weeks that describe ethical problems uh, faced by the justices. And I think some of those are overblown um, and really are not violations of the ethics rules. But again, the problem is we just have reporters discussing this, not the court addressing it squarely. Uh, overblown, such as perhaps what the uh, the the uh, reporting around Chief Justice Roberts and and his wife. Yes, I, that in that particular. One, yeah. I, I think they've done nothing wrong. And in fact, I think it's very important that a spouse be able to work. And from what I understand and know, and I don't know everything, but it, they, they've made every effort to follow the ethics rules. Yeah. But she so I think there, so this is where ethics becomes this like very um, it's defined by its gray areas. Right. Because I completely take your point um, about, you know, spouses should be allowed to work. But at the same time. Chief Justice Roberts' wife, when he became a justice, I believe she actually stopped uh, uh, directly practicing law herself, right, in in her law firm, because she she had said at the time that the you know it could um, pre- provo- uh, present some conflict of interest or just to have the appearance of impropriety, right? So does that concern about the appearance of impropriety have a uh, it, should it be a factor in considering what appropriate ethical behavior on the court should be? Absolutely. I mean, that is the the ethical standards that govern the lower federal court judges, but not the Supreme Court, talk about the need to avoid the appearance of impropriety. And recusal laws, which do apply to the Supreme Court justices, uh, require the justices to recuse, even if they don't think there'd be impropriety, if it would create that appearance. I mean, we have reporting that says, you know, Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor did not do that after receiving several book deals from, from Penguin Random House. I mean, does that disturb you? 
So I don't know the details of whether, you know, when those cases came before her and what her contractual or financial relationship was with Penguin Random House. So I can't comment specifically on her issues there, but I will just say it's part of the problem that we don't know more. Okay, part of the problem that we don't know more. And as you said, there are regarding recusal, there are clear guidelines, clear rules. Um, the question is, because the court isn't maybe regulating itself, we don't know how closely the justices are following the rules that are already in place. So, Professor Frost, when we come back, I want to talk more with you about sort of the history of how the court um, sort of has navigated ethical issues in the past and the legal questions around what Congress can and can't do. So we'll do that in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and we're back with Professor Amanda Frost. She's a professor of law at the University of Virginia, and we're talking about ethics and the United States Supreme Court. So let's get right to the question of whether or not Congress has the legal authority to uh, require or regulate, to require a code of ethics or regulate um, ethical issues um, at the Supreme Court court because there's the question of separation of powers. Well, here is Justice Anthony Kennedy back in 2007 testifying in a congressional hearing that, yes, he believes Congress has the power to regulate the court. Checks and balances recognizes that the three branches of government are really engaged in a common enterprise, a common purpose, and we have to have substantial interaction with each, with each other, as the Senator Specter mentioned. The jurisdiction of the courts, uh, the the rules of venue, uh, the size of the courts, the structure of the courts, the structure of the circuits, is is for the legislature to decide. And this this is as as it should be. That was Justice Anthony Kennedy back in 2007. Okay, so he says yes. Others say no. We heard a little bit earlier from Michael Mukasey, former attorney general under President George W. Bush. He testified uh, this week in the Senate before the Senate Judiciary Committee. So did Thomas Dupree, Jr., partner and co-chair of the Appellate and Constitutional Law Practice Group, Gibson, Dunn and and Crutcher. And he says no, Congress should not and cannot regulate the court. It is the Supreme Court not the Congress that has the prerogative under our constitutional structure to decide whether to adopt a code of conduct that governs themselves. As Chief Justice Roberts has written, courts require ample institutional independence 
And the judiciary's power to manage its internal affairs insulates courts from inappropriate political influence and is crucial to preserving public trust in its work as a separate and co-equal branch of government. Professor Frost, where do you stand on the, this issue of separation of powers? Yes, yeah, so I agree with Justice Kennedy um, that Congress clearly has constitutional authority to regulate the ethical obligations of Supreme Court justices. I'll just say, though, as a threshold matter and to make this perfectly clear to your listeners, there's no question that the Supreme Court and all federal courts have decisional independence, and that's protected by the Constitution. And what I mean by that is they cannot be penalized for the outcomes of the cases that they decide. And I stand strongly behind that principle. Um, But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is whether Congress can administer the courts through legislation, including by regulating the justices' ethical obligations and their conduct off the bench. And it's equally clear to me they can do that. In fact, Congress always has done that. So, but so then why is this, uh, what's prevented Congress from acting so far? Yeah. So, as I said, there are some statutes that apply to con- that apply to the Supreme Court. So Congress has acted. The problem there is the the justices are at times ignoring these statutes and suggesting, a little bit cryptically, but suggesting that maybe Congress lacks that constitutional authority, which I find troubling. So that's one problem. But the second problem is one you identified at the uh, top of the program, which is that Congress has taken a, a sort of lighter approach when it comes to the Supreme Court. Um, So the Supreme Court does not have a code of conduct that it follows. There's a federal statute that provides for discipline of lower federal court judges that violate that code or other ethical obligations. And that disciplinary mechanism does not apply to the Supreme Court. That statute excluded the Supreme Court. So Congress has given the Supreme Court wider berth, and I think it's now time to reconsider that. Mm. I will say, though, that um – as you know, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts was invited by judiciary to uh, to testify uh, before the committee. He declined. He sent a, a letter respectfully declining. But then he appended to that letter a statement on ethics principles and practices that were un- that were signed by the nine justices of the United States Supreme Court, uh, the nine current justices, I should say. And it seems to outline. Um, the sort of internal practices and, and they the, what they call the foundational ethics principles to which they subscribe in carrying out their responsibility. Um, so, I mean, have you taken a look at the, that statement? Oh, yes. I've read it closely. Does it seem adequate as um, a description of uh, practices that should cover um, uh, or sh- should um, regulate ethical behavior on the court? No, it does not. I had a few problems with it. So first, it doesn't actually acknowledge that the justices haven't been following these laws. Um, And so it's odd to read a document that says everything is fine here without acknowledging the very recent and significant problems that have been raised by investigative reporters who've uncovered these problems. Um, I also think the second problem is some of what the justices described uh, as doing, either they're not doing or fall short of what they're required to do. Um, Professor Frost, this is one of those moments where I just have to be completely transparent with listeners here. I'm having a hard time, and I don't want people to hear this in the wrong way. I'm having a hard time not laughing out loud because, in all seriousness, the things that you're saying, you keep coming back to this very important conclusion about, well, the justices might say they're doing stuff, but they're not really saying what they are doing that has been covered. I mean, and you've you've hinted a couple of times that 
perhaps part of the problem might be that they simply see themselves as above the law or above any reach of uh, ethical regulation. I mean, as a citizen of the United States, I find that not your thought, but the possibility of that being true on the high court utterly ridiculous. Yeah, I I find it very troubling that there's a suggestion both in this ethics statement and in some other um, uh, documents that the chief justice has issued over the years, such as his 2011 annual report. In that document, as well as this ethics statement, the justices have suggested that these laws that apply to them, that regulate their ethical obligations, might be unconstitutional, that Congress might lack that authority. I think that's extremely troubling. It's, It's wrong as a matter of the Constitution's text and longstanding practice. But also, it's really the, a, a self-inflicted wound because the court is going to only undermine its position in our place in government by claiming that it's above all law and all accountability. So let's can we talk about that a little bit more? Because this is something that many of the justices, I would say specifically and most vocally, in fact, Chief Justice John Roberts uh, and Justice Elena Kagan have said they are concerned about, about the public's belief in the legitimacy of the court. I mean, should that not be uh, adequate motivation for them to say, no, we are going to demonstrably prove that we are not above the law, that we are not above the ethical requirements that every single other federal court has to be, uh, is bound to, and, you know, we will embrace a formal code. I mean, the Supreme Court and every court's power comes not from the power of the purse or the power of the sword, as it's been put in the, the Federalist Papers, but because of the, the belief that the public has that they're administering the law impartially and fairly. Um, and so if the court loses the public's trust, it's really lost its place in our society. And I would hope the justices would realize that they could uh, strengthen their own institution by voluntarily adopting rules of conduct for mm. themselves. I will add, I'll say here, Professor Frost, that we are in a very um, delicate time for our democracy. Inst- the public's trust in any number of institutions is is just ebbing very, very, very rapidly, right? And um, I don't think that... I, I couldn't make the argument that Americans still view the justices on the United States Supreme Court as these sort of black-robed high priests of legal wisdom that somehow are smarter, more knowledgeable, more ethical, and wiser than the rest of us. I just don't think that confidence exists anymore um, because of all the politicization that's happened on any number of issues that's now um, sort of bled its way into the public's perception of the court. I mean, do you feel that... Uh, a similar urgency around that issue? Well, I do because I care deeply about courts, all all court systems, particularly the federal court system and particularly the U.S. Supreme Court. I do not always agree with the decisions. Sometimes I like them, sometimes I don't. But to me, that's beside the point. I want a a functioning and effective judiciary that can help resolve some of our nation's deepest um, political problems. And then, of course, we turn to the political branches as well. Um, And so... I feel like a court that has been uh, injured by its own failure to protect its integrity and reputation weakens our democracy because I want a strong court. Um, And if I don't like its decisions, the answer is typically elect a president who picks justices that you like. And that is the political process working effectively within the confines of the Constitution. When we have a system with courts where we feel that the justices themselves 
are considering themselves to be above the law or issuing just decisions that don't appear neutral or unbiased. That's a problem well, for that's, democracy. Well, that is the core problem, right? Because it's one thing to say, well, we may agree or disagree with uh, decisions based on the strengths or weaknesses of the legal arguments therein. But it's another thing entirely to say, well, there's doubt being cast on these wildly important decisions coming out of the Supreme Court because people don't have faith that they those decisions were made without undue external influence, right? I mean, that that is the key here. So um, I, I want to talk about What's happened in the past, because you've mentioned several times appropriately that Congress actually has taken actions to um, uh, to provide some sort of ethical uh, regulation or framework for federal courts. Now, specifically, you mentioned uh, a binding code of conduct that's been in place since 1973. So I want to hear a little bit from former federal judge Jeremy Fogel, who testified recently that throughout his time, both on the state and federal benches, uh, this code of conduct was critical. It really is your, your, your North Star. It's what you look at in terms of the values you want to uphold as a judge. And it, it's, it's something that guides your conduct, and it also is something that the public can look to and say, this is what we expect of our judges. So, Professor Frost, can you tell us a little bit more about this 1973 code of conduct? Sure. This is a code of conduct that applies to lower federal court judges. Um, it contains a number of, what, of canons. There's five canons that govern their conduct, and it's things like a judge should refrain from political activity um, or a judge should perform the duties in, of the office fairly and impartially and diligently. And these are basically provides guidance, a North Star, as Judge Fogel said, for the lower federal court judges. But it doesn't apply to the Supreme Court justices. They say they look to it for guidance, but there's plenty of examples of them uh, not following this code and its commentary. What was the decision-making behind exempting the nine justices? I think the idea was that, one, the justices are vetted very carefully in longer and more um, uh, detailed uh, confirmation hearings than lower court judges. So the idea is they come to the bench vetted very carefully, and then they're very visible. And so any misconduct on their part would, would be so quickly apparent to the world that they would not engage in it. But I think recent experience has shown us that we can't rely on that anymore. So for every, um, every judge below the Supreme Court that's subject to this 1973 Code of Conduct, what's the mechanism? Of, what's the enforcement or accountability mechanism in, in it? Yeah, so the code itself does not have an enforcement mechanism, okay. but there's something called a second law called the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act that applies only to the lower court judges that allows people to file complaints. Those complaints get investigated by the judiciary itself, and then action can be taken, uh, sometimes referring a judge for impeachment, but there's also many lesser forms of sanction like public censures that can ha this can all happen to lower federal court judges but not the Supreme Court justices. Okay. And but so but to be clear, Supreme Court justices can be impeached though. Absolutely. And it has Although I will say that um, any of the the ethical misconduct we've been discussing here about Justice Thomas, I do not think that rises to the level of an impeachable offense. I wouldn't support that. But I do think it should subject him to some form of censure as a lower federal court judge who'd violated the ethical rules would be subject to that form of punishment. What would that censure look like for a Supreme Court justice? So it would, could be a private statement of censure from a justice such as the chief justice. It could be a public statement from the eight colleagues on the bench saying he has failed to follow the laws 
it could require him to say, I realize I have failed to follow the laws and will do better in the future. Um, um, a public accounting, for example. There are other forms of, of censure that lower federal court judges have faced, such as not being allowed to write the opinions in cases for a period of time um, or uh, having to acknowledge wrongdoing and explain how they will improve in the future. These are all examples of the way lower federal court judges are admonished, and the Supreme Court justices so far haven't faced those consequences. Hmm. So it, it seems to keep coming up over and over again that the, the somehow the Supreme Court is different. I mean, you heard me rant about it a few minutes ago, this belief that that the, that, that high court is special in some unique way. Um, and we heard a little bit earlier from um, Thomas Dupree Jr.'s testimony um, before judiciary this week. Um, he also added in that testimony that he believed that having a code of ethics um, for, say, the Department of Agriculture, which uh, an ethical code does exist in uh, in the for the executive, he says that he said that that was not the same thing as enforcing one on the United States Supreme Court. Now, here's how um, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar uh, responded to that. You said their court is not just like the Department of Agriculture. And I was looking up; it was set up by Abraham Lincoln in 1862, being a big ag state that we are. Um, 100,000 employees, serves the people of this country, yet that department, which basically has jurisdiction over what our farmers do for ranching and farming and counter-cyclical payments, I mean, they've got ethical laws in place. So I actually see the opposite when I think about the power of this court um, and I think about what Ms. Frost said. I think there is every reason that this court should have ethical rules like the fine Department of Agriculture and that we don't look at that as a bad thing. We look at it as a good thing. So, Professor Frost, uh, Senator Klobuchar, they're referencing you. What specifically did you say that she was talking about? Yeah, well, I loved that exchange by Senator Klobuchar because she was making the point to Mr. Dupree that why shouldn't the Supreme Court have to follow at least the ethical standards that are in place in the Department of Agriculture? Why would we want the highest court in the land to have the lowest of ethical responsibilities? So I thought she made an excellent point there. And I'll just go back to saying I think it's in the court's own interest for it to have a code of conduct. And it's also Congress's role to protect the courts. And if the justices won't protect themselves, Congress can do it for them. Well, today we are speaking with Professor Amanda Frost. She's a professor of law at the University of Virginia, a leading expert on judicial ethics, I should say. Um, And she's also author of a really interesting uh, 2013 essay called Judicial Ethics and Supreme Court Exceptionalism. And we have an excerpt of that on our website, onpointradio.org. We'll be back in a moment. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. 
and a search for the truth once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about ethics and the United States Supreme Court. And I'm joined today by Amanda Frost. She's a professor of law at the University of Virginia, who was one of the many people who testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week on this exact issue. Um, Professor Frost, I just want to go back in time once again a little bit, because uh, even with no binding code Uh, no binding ethical code on the nine justices of of the Supreme Court, there is at least one example uh, of a justice who was uh, punished, to put it that way, for um, an ethical violation. Is there not? Uh, Yes. So uh, Justice Abe Fortas back in the 60s had accepted a $20,000 payment from a former client while he was a justice on the Supreme Court. And when that came out, he resigned. He actually returned the money even before the press uh, got hold of it because he felt uncomfortable about it. But when that uh, fact came out, he he resigned under some pressure. And there's other justices who violated ethics laws over the years. It's been fairly rare, but part of it is we may not know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. There's so much that occurs in the court that's not transparent. And that's one of the reasons we need more disclosure and more ethical guidelines for the justices. Yeah, I guess those would be the unknown unknowns. Um, but but I want to be clear on what happened to Justice Fortas. He resigned, as you said, under some pressure. But did that pressure come from his fellow justices or was it public pressure? No, it was public pressure. Um, he had uh, been – he'd come to the public's attention both for that payment plus he'd had frequent meetings with the president at the time, Johnson. And so there was a general sense that he had not behaved ethically while in office, and he clearly felt the pressure from the scrutiny he was receiving and decided to step down. Uh, I think there was a private counseling by some of his colleagues as well that it would be better for the court if he did so. Uh Now, given what um, politics are today in the United States, could you imagine um, the justices being responsive to any uh, particular upswell of uh, public pressure in the way that uh, uh, Justice Fortas was? Well, I would say I hope so. I fear the lesson of the last five to 10 years in our political system has been don't resign and weather the storm. But um, I would like to think that today the justices could at least closely look at their conduct and realize that they're harming an institution they care about and improve going forward. I would like to think the public pressure could could produce that result. Mm. Um, we all hold on to some optimism here, Professor Frost. Uh, but w- during – I want to come back to where we started actually because there's a – there is a, a line of criticism that's coming from um, Republicans on the Judiciary Committee, which is, is worthy of further examination here because, um, you know, you heard Senator Graham say, this is cherry picking. And, and um, he and others are saying, look, the only reason why the current Senate Judiciary Committee is so um, – uh, enthusiastic about bringing a, a, an ethical code of conduct to the United States Supreme Court is because of the current makeup of the court, right? That, you know, to put it crudely, that 6-3 conservative liberal um, uh, makeup of the nine justices, that this isn't really about ethics, but rather about um, uh, politics. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, well, first of all, I, I thought it was odd that so many of the Republican senators made the argument that many at that hearing that, well, there's many ethical violations by justices on the liberal side of the spectrum as well. That was the, the substance of what many of them said at that hearing. And so therefore, it's all OK. That, yeah, my response is great that we need ethics legislation and ethics guidance for this court that you're just proving it with your comments. I take their point that they feel there's cherry picking. And again, my answer to that is if the court was more transparent, if it was following ethics guidelines, if it was taking account of the errors it made and publicly discussing them and apologizing or describing how it would do better, that would um, you know, ensure an unbiased uh, account of what's going on at the court. You know, um, I know that my kindergarten teacher actually listens to this program. Her name's Mrs. Carpenter. Mrs. Carpenter taught me that two wrongs do not make a right. So so senators arguing that like, hey, other justices do it too, doesn't really seem to be a very persuasive argument to uh, not bind any of the justices to some sort of ethical code. Now, uh, but to put a finer point on this, how long have you been working on this issue? Yeah, that's a, a point I tried to make at the hearing, too, in response to the charge of it's all just about partisan politics. I've been talking about this since 2005. Uh, Chairman Durbin mentioned he'd been on top of this issue since, I think, 2011, he said. And obviously, there's been there's been a huge turnover in justices since those years and some decisions that a liberal would like and some decisions a conservative would like in those years. And it's really not about politics for me and at least some other people. It's about having an effective court that the public can trust. Hmm. Okay. Well, um, as I said, the the court is sensitive to um, the public's perception of uh, of its own legitimacy, of the of the Supreme Court's legit legitimacy. And I had mentioned Justice Ale- Elena Kagan a few minutes ago. Back in 2019, uh, Justice Kagan testified, in fact, she testified at a congressional hearing that the Supreme Court at that time was looking into a possible judicial code of conduct. I do believe that with respect to a code of judicial conduct, just Justice Alito has suggested some of the reasons why we have reservations about following the same code that applies to uh, lower court judges. But, uh, but for that reason, the Chief Justice is, um, is, is studying the question of whether to have a code of judicial conduct that's applicable only to the United States Supreme Court. So that's something that we have not discussed as a conference yet and that um, has pros and cons, I'm sure. But, uh, but it's something that's, um, that's being thought very seriously about. Okay, okay. A couple of things there, Professor Frost. First of all, I can't recall what Justice Alito um, had had expressed as some of the reservations they had about following the, the the 1973 code that we talked about earlier. Do you remember what his reservations were? No, I don't have any record of that. Okay, uh, good. So we'll put that aside, and hopefully, um, maybe some in a future show, I'll be we'll be able to dig that up. But then about this uh, this code that the Chief Justice was then studying the question of whether to have it, was any progress made on that? No, and it's discouraging because that 2019 statement that the court was looking at this seriously was a a really interesting sort of glimpse behind the opaque curtain that is uh, the Supreme Court. It was gave us a sense that the court was taking this seriously and was going to start regulating itself. But it's been enough years since that 2019 testimony by Justice Kagan to I've given up at this point. I assume the court is not trying to develop a code or it would have announced that Mm. earlier than this. It's interesting also, though, that that Elena Kagan had testified at this hearing um, 
but but as I said earlier, Chief Justice John Roberts did not uh, this week uh, at the same Judiciary Committee hearing that you were at. Do you think that was a mistake by the part of the chief? I do think it was a mistake. I was really disappointed to read his letter um, where he refused the opportunity to testify. Although he didn't say it explicitly, he strongly implied that it would violate judicial independence and the separation of powers for him to testify. And that strikes me as very odd, considering that I think it's more than 90 times that justices have testified since 1960 before Congress, including that testimony you just played from Elena Kagan discussing the potential for a code of conduct. Of course, justices shouldn't testify about the substance of the cases before them and their decisions. But of course, they should testify about the administration of the court and um, the the methods that would improve and strengthen the court and, and give their input. And I think it would have helped if J- Chief Justice Roberts had shown up and testified and given his input to Congress. Well, I mean, in that letter, he uh, references the United States Senate website saying that no president has ever testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee and only three presidents have testified before any congressional committee in the history of the United States. But I would say he says directly that ju- uh, judicial independence is at stake here because he said... Uh, Uh, He said, testimony by the chief justice of the United States is exceedingly rare, as one might expect in the light of separation of powers, uh, concerns and importance uh, of the of preserving judicial independence. So he just comes out and says it. Yeah. Well, so maybe I was giving him the benefit of the doubt there. I would say that's a really disingenuous response, because, first of all, he was invited to testify or to designate an associate justice to testify. Didn't have to be him. That's what Chairman Durbin Uh, you know, his letter said, you or an associate. The chief justice said, well, the chief justice himself never testifies. So really, that's beside the point. Fine, send an associate justice if you think you yourself shouldn't do it. And second, the point about the president doesn't testify. The legislative branch engages in extraordinary oversight over the executive branch. There is no question that high-level political appointees answer all the time for the conduct of the executive branch in front of Congress. Why shouldn't the court do that too? Hmm. Okay, so I want to also quote something that came from uh, uh, from an, another legal scholar. This is Lawrence Tribe uh, from Harvard Law School, professor emeritus from Harvard Law School. He actually submitted uh, written testimony, I believe. And he said that, um, quote, I would be less than candid were I not to confess that I regard legislation to impose ethical norms in a binding way on the justices as eminently sensible. Okay, and then he says, I see such legislation as necessary, though probably not sufficient in a response to the current situation. What do you think about that? Well, I'm glad to see him saying that he thinks that legislation would be sensible and necessary. Um, I don't know what he means by sufficient, but perhaps he's suggesting that the problem is the enforcement of laws that apply to the Supreme Court. And that is a separate problem. First, we need to have clear ethical obligations that they follow. And next, we think need to think about how best to police and enforce those limits. Okay. So how would, how would the enforcement, what would you ideally like an enforcement mechanism to look like? Yeah. So the Judicial Conduct and Disability Act, which is that law that applies only to the lower federal courts and provides methods of investigating alleged misconduct and then uh, penalizing judges who engage in that misconduct, that's a good guide for us, I think. It's worked fairly well for the lower federal courts. Um, the frivolous complaints are very quickly dismissed because that's always a concern that somebody who's a disgruntled litigant would complain because they don't like the result. Well, those complaints are quickly dismissed. And then serious complaints are investigated and can lead to, as we discussed, various forms of 
punishments such as public statements of censure, um, plans going forward as to how to avoid future violations of the law, in extreme cases, referral for impeachment. But there are various mechanisms by which we've been using to police the lower court conduct. These are judges. Lower court judges are also judges selected under the Constitution, nominated by the president, confirmed by the Senate. They've been abiding by these rules and laws for decades, and the Supreme Court justices should as well. Is lifetime appointment part of the problem here? Uh, you know, I will say that I think this conversation should go beyond ethics, perhaps not right on this tel- the show, but in, in general with the conversation about the court. I think there's more uh, that's going wrong with the Supreme Court today than just the, the problems with the ethics of individual justices. Um, so the lifetime tenure is uh, – many people have pointed to that as a problem because justices are now selected at a very young age, younger and younger, and then they serve – uh, till they die quite frequently, which is 40 to 50 years. To, to see that kind of power being exercised by people who are completely unaccountable to the electorate is worrisome to some. I do think that that's a, a very serious and important conversation, but one that's apart from the ethical conversation. Okay. Well, so do you, can you can you make the argument to me about why you retain, if you do, some optimism that a formal code of ethical conduct may eventually be applied to the United States Supreme Court? Because everything that you've said so far, Professor Frost, if I'm totally candid, uh, it makes me think that we have both a uh, a historical a pol- a, a, and a political situation right now, and I would say even a cultural one, again, in the view of what the court is supposed to mean, stand for, that um, is kind of stacked against any real meaningful change here. So I do see some reasons to feel optimistic. One is that some of the senators at the hearing, Republican senators, did seem to acknowledge that there was some problems with transparency and with the justices failing to follow various ethical obligations. I heard no one uh, say that uh, Tom, Justice Thomas had not violated the law because he did. Um, and so I did hear some Republican senators say, look, you know, we do see that there's a problem. We do see that transparency and oversight is needed. Um, and, and that gives me some hope. I will also say that I think the court itself cannot view what's happening now as being good for it. And so I remain maybe mildly optimistic that some of these news stories and some of the the oversight hearings by Congress might lead the court to take action to improve the situation for itself, which would be the best result. You know, a common human trait is that you may not want to listen at all to what your critics say, but you might listen to your friends. I mean, I'm seeing that the American Bar Association is also saying, not that the bar is a constant friend of the court, but like that the bar is is demanding that the Supreme Court adopt uh, an ethics code. So is there sort of um, a groundswell happening within the legal world itself? Yes, I feel that the justices are hearing from a lot of different sources, including, as I said, some Republican members of Congress, that they need to do better, that this is hurting them. I view it as a self-inflicted wound, that they are not taking action themselves to shore up uh, their ethical obligations and their compliance with existing ethics laws. So I would like to think that an institutionalist like Chief Justice John Roberts would realize the approach they're taking, which is there's nothing to see here and we're above the law anyway, is not effective to protect the court. And they should switch tacks and embrace this moment as a chance to improve as an institution. Mm. Now, I want to just quickly note that um, 
I don't actually believe that ethics codes or even offices offices of ethics and investi- investigations are any kind of panacea, right? I mean, all Congress has to do is look at itself and find out how many examples of really question, ethically questionable, be- questionable behavior has never had any um, accountability applied to it. So it's not like something magically would happen if the court um, was suddenly bound by an ethical code. But in the last minute that we have, Professor Frost, I wonder what you think may happen um, in in the future if the court does not either internally adopt a code um, that the public can see and know about or if Congress doesn't apply one. What could the consequences be? Well, I think we're seeing them play out right now. It seems like every day when I, you know, open the New York Times website or the Washington Post or uh, any number of different news sources, I see a story about the justices a particular individual violating ethics rules. So unfortunately, I think the court will continue to suffer from these damaging news stories unless and until it takes hold of the situation, creates a code for itself, and then follows it. I would put it this way, that if if we want the nation, if we want the people of the United States to believe in the rule of law, it behooves us to have nine justices on the Supreme Court who are interpreting that law to also say the rule of law applies to us. Well... That's my thought for the day. Professor Amanda Frost, it's been incredible to speak with you. She's at the University of Virginia Law School, an author of a really fascinating paper back in 2013 about judicial ethics. She also testified this week before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Professor Amanda Frost, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. This is On Point.